Okay, so I'm going to go over the chapter 11 uh, notes that I've taken on uh, fluid and electrolyte balance, um, dehydration, and fluid overload, and then I'll make something separate for the um, electrolytes. So, um, so fluid and electrolyte balance uh, is very important in maintaining homeostasis, um, and that's basically keeping the body at a nice, uh, normal, equal range, and it's not like crazy or anything. Um, so there is the extracellular fluid and the intracellular fluid that's in the body. So the extracellular fluid, it takes up about one-third of the total body's water. Um, it includes the interstitial fluid which is like the blood, the lymph, uh, bone, connective tissue, and of course water um, and plasma. Uh, transcellular fluids um, is also part of the extracellular fluid and that includes the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, synovial fluid, peritoneal fluids, and pleural fluids. And then the intracellular fluid takes up about two-thirds of the total body's water. So uh, <clears throat> water is moving all the time between uh, their compartments, so from cells to the extracellular fluid and vice versa. Um, and that's through different mechanisms such as filtration. So one is filtration, another one will be osmosis, and another one will be diffusion. Um, so filtration is the movement of fluid or water through the cell or blood vessel membrane um, based on the water pressure or hydrostatic pressure. Um, so the water will move from the area of high pressure to the area of low pressure um, until there is equilibrium or equal pressure on both sides. So then if that doesn't happen, then that's disequilibrium. So one side has more pressure than the other side. Um, an example of this pressure would be blood pressure. So um, the heart, the blood that goes in the heart or whatever goes to the blood. Um, go, it goes from like in the vessels to the capillaries. And then the pressure from the capillaries determines if the filtration or um, any exchange happens. Um, so another one I think is... Um, right-sided heart failure. So the blood will back up into the system. The capillary pressure will increase. And so more fluid will move into the interstitial tissues. Um, another one is, like I said, is the diffusion, is diffusion. So it's a movement of particles across a permeable membrane. Um, so the movement, yeah, the movement of particles across the permeable membrane, permeable. Uh, so it goes from a high concentration to a low concentration. So the more particles are present, um, they're confined into the fluid spaces, um, and then uh, it'll create collision. So like in, what was it, chemistry, like you talk about how the atoms are like hitting each other. So the more atoms or whatever there are, uh, they'll hit each other, and then they'll, they'll create all these collisions and spread off. And they'll keep moving until the concentration gradient is equal. Um, and why does that happen? So um, there's two areas of fluids and they have, yeah, there's two areas of the fluids and they have different numbers of the same particles. Um, so the diffusion is based on the concentration gradient. So the steeper the gradient, 
the faster the diffusion. So that basically means like the more particles or like the more concentration of particles, um, the more that the diffusion can happen and then everything will kind of equal out, if that makes any sense. Um, so why is the diffusion important? So diffusion will help transport most electrolytes through the cell membrane. Um, and that can be selective. Um, so it chooses to close off certain particles. So that, for example, would be a sodium pump. So I think like sodium will go out of the cell and that like and it has to transfer with potassium. Um, so potassium goes in the cell and and yeah, so they kind of have to have like that little channel to help facilitate that that type of diffusion. Um, yeah, and then they cannot go. Another example would be glucose. So glucose needs a mediator in order to get into cells, and that is insulin. So insulin will help um, the glucose get in. Uh, and if you don't have insulin, the glucose can't get in, and then it starts building up. So yeah. <clears throat> so now uh, I'll talk about osmosis. So that's when water only can move through the selective permeable membrane. Um, and a concentration gradient needs to exist where only uh, H2O can pass. Um, so water will move from the area of um, high concentration, so maybe like a high concentration of water to a lower concentration. Um, it was kind of confusing when I was looking at it because I always think water will go to the, um, the area with the most particles. So if the water is equal on both sides of of each membrane. So say there's one membrane and another membrane. <clears throat> and one side of the membrane has like seven particles and the other has like three particles. The water with that is on the side of the three particles will move over to the side of the seven particles um, <clears throat> in order to maintain an equilibrium. Um, so that that would be osmosis. So it's, move, it's moving from, I don't know, it's like a low concentration of particles to a high concentration of particles. Um, then there's osmolarity and osmolality, which is kind of like the same thing. But osmolarity is the number of millimoles in a liter of solution, whereas osmolality is the number of milliosmoles in a kilogram of solution, but it's kind of used interchangeably. Um, <clears throat> there is, uh, in one liter of H2O that is equivalent to one kilogram, uh, so it's kind of like the same, uh, and then, uh, plasma, plasma osmolarity is usually 270 to 300. The closer it is to 300, it would be considered an isotonic, um, yeah, isotonic fluid. If it's greater than 300, then it's called hypertonic, so it has a greater osmotic pressure. Um, and then uh, that's like if you're infusing hypertonic 3% uh, normal saline or 5% normal saline. Um, and that will help draw, if you're, say, if you are infusing that, right, you're infusing a hypertonic solution, it's going to go into your vessels, right? So then. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> that will draw fluid from the interstitial space and go into the vascular space. So that will help increase plasma volume. Okay, I hope that made sense. And then there is when it's um, under 270 milliosmoles, it's considered a hypoosmotic or hypotonic um, setting. So that would be like infusing like 0 0.45 normal saline. Um, and then the fluid would go from the blood into the interstitial fluid because it would go to the area. It would, yeah, it would move over to the area of a higher concentration. So the interstitial space would have more concentration than the actual um, blood or plasma of the blood vessels. Um, <clears throat> so those are very important. So osmosis and filtration are very important, and they kind of work together to um, <clears throat> maintain uh, extracellular fluid and the intracellular fluid. Um, so this section will kind of go over the a little bit of electrolytes, but I'm not really going to go into it too much. Um, and then more of the fluids. So uh, as a quick little recap, um, which I'll go over in a separate little episode thingy, for my knowledge, uh, there's sodium. So sodium is important, and in the blood, it, it normally is about 135 to 145. Potassium is normally 3.5 to 5, and then uh, calcium is... 9.0 to 10.5 chloride is 98 to 106 and magnesium would be 1.8 to 2.6 so these are all the typical blood levels for those specific electrolytes so there are five electrolytes that we mostly pay attention to um, so we would check for patients in general, their intake and output. So what is considered intake for a patient? Um, it would be any oral fluids, if they're taking any parenteral fluids, so IVs, um, any enemas, if they have any irrigation, like wounds or something, that's considered an intake. Um, things that are not measurable for us would be a solid food. Um, or whatever is lost through metabolism because everyone's metabolism is a bit different. Um, <clears throat> okay, and now for output. So what can we measure for output when it comes to fluid balance? So we measure urine, okay? We measure if they're throwing up, so emesis. We're measuring feces. Um, also any drainage that comes from like wounds or any anything like that. But we can't really measure um, perspiration, so their sweat, like... Can't say, oh, they lost this much from sweating or um, vaporization. So like whatever, I'm assuming that's breathing. So whatever they're exhaling, they're losing fluids as they're exhaling. And you won't be able to really measure like, oh, you lost 200 milliliters from this. You can't do that. <clears throat> but those, that, those are not measurable. In general, uh, when it comes to measuring like fluid loss, um, it's usually through like urine. Um, so minimum urine amount to be excreted per day says 400 to 600 according to my book. Um, that's a little bit less than what we we're taught in school. So it says like a normal would be 30 milliliters per hour. Um, so that would that would be the minimum per hour that somebody can should be excreting. 
Um, so, um, and then urine is produced through like the whole kidney system, so, or the renal system, and the kidneys will help by working with hormones to maintain any fluid balance. So, uh, we'll go into a bit of the hormones in a second. Um, I also need to mention here that there is um, insensible H2O loss. So, that's also kind of stuff that uh, kind of happens uh, that you can, you could probably measure, but, um, anyway, so it's, uh, sal salvation, so, like, salivating, um, drainage from fistulas or any other drains, uh, there's also GI sectioning, so, yeah, you can measure some of this stuff, for sure, um, and then the normal insensible H2O loss would be about 500 to 1,000 milliliters per day, okay, so, now I can go over the hormones. So there's a couple of hormones that are involved in regulating fluid balance. So um, the first one I'm going to quickly mention is aldosterone. Um, so aldosterone is secreted from the adrenal cortex uh, when sodium in the extracellular fluid is low. Um, and it helps to prevent any H2O or sodium loss. So when that's excreted, it helps to keep that stuff in. Um, so the kidney, since this is in the kidneys, the kidney nephrons um, help to reabsorb the sodium in the H2O. This will help to increase blood pressure, and it also helps to... Uh, uh, sorry, regulate osmolarity, osmolarity. Um, but the, the downside is that it kind of uh, gets rid of potassium. So there's increased potassium excretion. So you should definitely check your potassium levels um, and stuff like that. So the next one that we're going to mention is antidiuretic hormone is also known as vasopressin. Um, it's created in the posterior posterior pituitary, um, and then it's kind of I think it's sent to the hypothalamus, um, and that has osmoreceptors in it, so that helps regulate or check how the osmolarity is, um, and then when there is increased osmolarity, uh, cells will kind of shrink. Oh, yeah, in de increase blood osmolarity, the cells will shrink. So, antidiuretic hormone will be released, and this helps to retain H2O. Yeah. So, antidiuretic hormone acts on the kidney nephrons, and then more H2O is reabsorbed. And then it helps to decrease the blood osmolarity. So then the blood becomes more diluted. Um, so then that way the cells can start to swell up again and become like normal. Not like overly swollen, but you know, like regular so that they're not shrunken. Um, and then the whole process kind of starts over again with the pituitary and the hypothalamus and the osmoreceptors. And then the when everything kind of reaches a good like baseline again, then the antidiuretic hormone uh, kind of stops being secreted and everything go back to normal. Um, then there's the natriuretic peptides. Uh, so those are the 
those are from the cells that line the atrium, the ventricles. Um, natriuretic peptides will bind to receptors in nephrons. Um, there are atrial and brain natriuretic peptides. So some of the cells are found in the atrium, or yeah, atria, and some are found in the ventricles. So those are in the heart. Those help um, to increase urine output, uh, decreases the reabsorption of sodium, and then the goal is to have a decreased blood volume. So I'm assuming just based on reading this here that that's when your blood pressure is crazy. So like when it's like really high, then this hormone gets uh, secreted because it can sense that the blood pressure is high and that there's extra work for us. So it's like, okay, we need to get rid of some of this volume. So we will decrease, we'll increase the urine output to get rid of some fluid. We need to get rid of sodium so we don't retain water. Um, that, that's how that would get regulated. Okay, so now the renin-angiotensin pathway. So that's the balance between blood volume and the volume in the cells. So it helps to regulate the blood volume and fluid balance and is also called the RAS pathway. So the kidneys will help regulate water and sodium to make sure that the blood pressure is okay and that perfusion is being done correctly. Um, so if um, blood pressure, blood volume, blood oxygen, and blood osmolarity are low, then renin starts to get secreted. So renin will activate angiotensinogen. Um, so angiotensinogen gets like works with renin and then it becomes angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is then converted to angiotensin 2 because of angiotensin converting enzyme. So what's angiotensin 2? So angiotensin 2 helps to constrict the arteries and the veins so this will help increase blood pressure. It also helps um, by constricting the arterioles, and it also decreases glomerular filtration rate, and it helps the reduction of urine output. So it basically tells the adrenal glands to and it also tells the adrenal glands to secrete aldosterone. So what does aldosterone do again? Aldosterone will help retain water and sodium, right? Okay. So it's also called the salt-saving hormone. So angiotensinogen, oh sorry, angiotensin two will help by increasing blood pressure by constricting arteries and veins, constricting arterioles, uh, reducing urine output, and telling the adrenal glands to secrete aldosterone. So that will help to increase like blood pressure and blood volume. So um, this also happens when a patient is in like shock, like I guess hypovolemic shock or something, um, or if a patient is at risk for hemorrhage. So the RAS pathway has a lot to be involved with the um, with hypertension. Um, so hypertension um, is basically high blood pressure, very high blood pressure. Um, it's usually managed uh, through diet, so that would be like a low salt or reduced diet. Um, uh, basically exercise and things like that. The reason I'm mentioning it is because the RAS pathway, because it increases the blood pressure, then there are a lot of patients or people who have increased blood pressure 
Um, and then there are medications that help act on this RAS pathway to reduce blood pressure for patients so that they're not going into like a hypertensive crisis or, um, or at risk for stroke or anything like that. So um, usually hypertension will be treated with a diuretic, ther diuretic therapy. Um, so that would be helping increasing the excretion of sodium um, and then uh, excretion of water so that they'll be less in the blood. Um, then there are ACE inhibitors, so that's angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors. So as we just mentioned, uh, ACE helps convert angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. So if you stop ACE from happening, then it won't create angiotensin 2. So it disrupts that system or the pathway, and then that way it decreases blood volume and it also decreases the blood pressure. Then there are ARBs, so that's angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, so that stops angiotensin 2, or it's angiotensin 2 receptor blocker, sorry. Um, so it helps by stopping angiotensin 2 from binding to its receptors, which would increase the blood pressure and blood volume. So by having an ARB, you will help uh, reduce blood pressure because you're stopping that, you know, that the binding of the receptors and stuff. Um, there's also direct renin inhibitors. Um, so those will stop renin uh, from converting angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1. Um, I'm not sure of any medications. Our book doesn't say it, and I didn't bother looking it up, but that is a medication that would um, be used to help lower blood pressure to stop this cascade from happening. Okay, <clears throat> so now that we've talked about like some of the hormones, we've talked about you know uh, fluid balance and whatnot, we're going to start talking about dehydration. So uh, dehydration occurs because the intake or retention of fluids uh, is less than what is needed for the body. So there's low fluid volume and so there's low plasma volume and uh, there could be an actual increase of loss so uh, or decreased intake. So you're not taking in enough fluids, you're also um, peeing out a lot of fluids. So your body is just losing a bunch of water and not gaining enough to get back to homeostasis. Um, so uh, water will go from the plasma to the interstitial space sometimes and that's called uh, relative dehydration. Um, so some causes of dehydration, there's a whole bunch. Um, I only listed a couple here so um, and they're kind of, I would say kind of simple but there's vomiting, so if you're vomiting, you're losing whatever's in your stomach. Uh, hemorrhage, you're bleeding out. Fistula, not really sure how you'd lose fluid. I haven't looked that up, sorry. Um, GI suction, so sucking out whatever's in the GI system, and impaired thirst. So if you have, if your body's not telling you you're thirsty, you're not gonna be drinking enough, so you will be dehydrated. Okay, so who is that? more risk for dehydration so that would be the older adults um, there's less water in an older adults body compared to younger folks um, there's also the decreased thirst sensation and also some older people not all but some are on medications that might um, help promote dehydration because of whatever its effects are so uh, an easy one would be a diuretic they're taking a diuretic 
they're going to be peeing out a bunch of stuff and they might become dehydrated from that, especially if they're not taking in enough liquids or things like that. Um, so dehydration can happen from fluid loss and it can happen from electrolyte loss. Um, so isotonic, I guess, dehydration is electrolyte loss and it's super common or it's the most common. Um, the intracellular fluid would be normal, but the extracellular fluid would be lost. So there would be no change in, in the cells, but outside the cells there will be. Um, and then that can cause like hypovolemia because <clears throat> you'll, you'll have less liquids and blood and plasma and all that fun stuff in the extracellular fluids. Um, so this can be treated and prevented by just balancing INOs. Um, also by reducing things that will increase fluid loss. So by drinking caffeine or alcohol, you're going to, it'll help promote fluid loss. It'll make you dehydrated. Um, and eyes and nose are important because say your, your intake is a lot more than your output or, your, or for this case, your output is a lot more than your intake, then you're going to get dehydrated. Um, <clears throat> so as a nurse, uh, your nursing assessment and things like that will include food and liquid intake so you need to know what they're eating what they're drinking um, you also should weigh your patient because they could be losing weight um, from water loss or liquid fluid loss um, and it's very important to remember that one liter of h2o is equal to 2.2 lit pounds libs libs uh, all right so um, one liter of fluid so if your patient loses like 4.4 pounds that that's because they probably lost about two liters of liquid and um, they're becoming dehydrated for whatever reason um, it's very important to also ask about medications uh, it's also important to ask about if they have any kidney disease or endocrine diseases because um, that will definitely affect like your fluid volume or how your hormones are reacting to the pressures and things that are happening in your body okay <clears throat> so we'll see some cardiovascular respiratory skin neuro all those all those type of things um so let's go over cardiovascular real quick you'll have an increased heart rate when you're dehydrated and this is because it's a compensatory mechanism to maintain your blood pressure um the peripheral pulses will be weak though and you'll have a decreased blood pressure um and especially if a patient is standing or if they, they might have orthostatic hypotension. Um, so their blood pressure will get even lower when they stand. Um, normally you can kind of see neck veins. They're not crazy distended, but in cardiovascular assessment of a patient who has dehydration, their neck veins will be flat. Um, their hand veins may also be flat. Um, as far as respiratory status goes, they'll have an increased rate, and that's because of decreased perfusion. So increased respiratory rate because of decreased perfusion. So their body is trying to catch up and get as much oxygen as possible so that they can get it to the tissues, but they can't because they don't have enough fluids. Okay. Uh, as far as skin goes, we'll, we will assess mucous membranes, so we'll check like the eyes, we'll check like the inside of the mouth, uh, we'll check the skin turgor, um, things like that, and you check skin turgor how? By 
um, pinching the skin on the top of the hand. Um, for older folks, it'll be like pinching the skin of the, the forehead or the sternum. Uh, for babies, it'll be the abdomen. So that's how you would check skin turgor there. Uh, you'd also see how long it takes for the skin to go back to baseline from pinching it and stuff. Okay, so then there's neuro changes. So these would be the changes in mental status and temperature. So every degree that it is in, that it, the temperature is increased, you may lose uh, at least 500 milliliters or more of body fluids. So that's very important because um, if you have that increased temperature, you're just going to keep losing fluids. So dehydration is a big a big problem for people who have fevers. As far as um, kidneys, uh, there may be a urine volume change. The specific gravity may be 1.030 or higher, so that's on the higher end of course. That's because the urine might be more concentrated. It might be darker in color like amber and it might have a strong odor. Um, and also it says here that it should, let me see, 500 milliliters, less than 500 milliliters a day when you don't have kidney disease is not good. So if your output is less than 500, that's not good, especially if you don't have kidney disease. <clears throat> okay, what labs do we check? So we will be checking H&H, uh, &H, glucose, protein, BUN, creatinine, electrolytes, and those will usually be elevated in someone that has dehydration uh, because of the H2O loss, so that fat, um, the H2O leaves the body. I'm trying to think about this. So the H2O leaves the body, and all this kind of stuff stays in there, so it'll be a more concentrated um, like blood vessel, or the stuff that's in the blood is more concentrated just because the water is leaving. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything else is going to leave the body, too. Um, what do we do as interventions? Um, so as a nurse, we will always be monitoring fluid replacement. We need to make sure that they're getting enough fluids. Um, we should maintain about 60 to 120 milliliters every hour. Um, there's oral rehydration solutions. Um, so if they can take things by mouth, that's great. If they can't, they might need IV replacement. Um, it's always important to monitor pulse um, and the urine output. And there might be some drugs that will be prescribed by the doctor that you can probably administer based on why the patient has dehydration. So that would be they have dehydration from a condition that's causing diarrhea. They're going to give an antidiarrheal. Um, if it's from a bacteria that's causing diarrhea, they might need an uh, antimicrobial or antibiotic to kill off that bacteria that's causing all these problems. Um, there are antiemetics. So antiemetic would be like no vomiting. So if they're vomiting a lot, they're going to get dehydrated. So you need to stop that so that they can keep their fluids in and then they'll be fine, hopefully. And then um, there's antipyretics. So those guys are for fevers. So um, that's like your Tylenols and things. And you would give that if they have a high fever because remember, uh, every degree increase in temperature, you might be losing 500 milliliters or more of body fluid. It doesn't say where 
like how much like if that's per day or per hour or whatever but it might be per day if that makes sense but that's something to remember also we need to just prevent injuries for somebody who's dehydrated we should be checking their vitals check their muscle strength making sure their blood pressure isn't too low where they're dizzy and they fall down and things like that um so lastly uh, i'm just going to quickly go over fluid overload and then after that i'll probably make something about the electrolytes if i have time to do that because i really need to figure out how to get my stuff together okay so fluid overload so fluid overload is the opposite of dehydration so dehydration is less fluid in the body or more output of fluid whereas fluid overload is overhydration. there's too much intake or um, you're retaining too much and you're not peeing out the stuff that you need to pee out um so it's co the common type of fluid overload would be hypervolemia so hyper is increased, volemia is volume, ea is condition of, I think. So it's a condition of increased volume. Some changes um, the body uses to compensate would be to try to increase the urine output. Um, and the body might create or form edema to get fluid out of the vascular space, um, but it would go into the interstitial part of the ECF. Uh, if it gets really severe, um, it would create a heart failure. Heart failure is no good. Um, and pulmonary edema. So that's basically like edema, swelling, uh, fluid accumulation in the lungs. And that will cause like other respiratory problems down the road. So um, we, oh, it also, when you have fluid overload, it will not necessarily decrease electrolytes but the fluid is a lot more than what the electrolytes are so it kind of dilutes everything so sodium and potassium will be decreased um and this can lead to seizures coma and death 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 sorry uh so it'll lead to that um and when you have an increased extracellular fluid it also can cause uh increased circulatory overload I have a really cool like chart that I kind of want to talk about if I can find it there no no there I go there I go just wasting time sounds good oh is that it there we go okay so all right when you have increased extracellular fluid volume that will increase your circulatory overload um, so that will lead to either increased venous return or increased mean arterial pressure. When you have increased venous return, that can lead to increased cardiac contractility. So the heart is trying to contract faster or more efficiently to um, get these fluids to go through the system um, better, right? When you have increased mean arterial pressure, um, the f there's a, going to be a fluid shift. So uh, plasma will go to the interstitial space, um, which will be causing the formation of, a, of an edema. Um, and then that will help normalize a, plas a normal plasma volume, uh, although you do have like edema and all that. Also, when you have increased mean arterial pressure, 
you'll have a decreased secretion of antidiuretic hormone, which is secreted by the posterior pituitary, remember? Um, and it'll also decrease the secretion of aldosterone. So remember, aldosterone will help retain water and sodium. And antidiuretic hormone will help to prevent diuresis, right? Yeah. It'll help retain the H2O. So that's why it'll be decreased, okay? Um, that's the body's response to that. Um, so that also will increase renal excretion of sodium and water in hopes to maintain a normal plasma volume. Lastly, increased mean arterial pressure, I can't talk, increased mean arterial pressure will also increase the secretion of natriuretic peptide, which will also increase renal excretion of sodium and water, which will also hope to maintain a normal plasma volume. So that was just a cool chart that was in my book. So I felt like I should talk about that. Um, cool. So what do we do for an assessment for somebody with fluid overload? So one of the main things that we just mentioned is edema. There'll be pitting edema. That's like you push your finger into the skin um, and there'll be like a little pit and it'll take a while to come back up. So it'll be, it's like playing with putty. Yeah, it's like putty. It's, it's really bad. Um, okay, and then cardiovascular, um, you'll have an increased pulse. You'll have increased blood pressure. You'll have decreased pulse pressure. Um, you'll have distended neck veins, like the jugular distension. Uh, hand veins will be distended. Um, there'll be weight gain, so it's very important to check weight. Uh, as far as respiratory goes, there'll be an increased respiratory rate. Um, there'll be shallow respirations, though. There might be shortness of breath. Uh, you can hear crackles when you try to listen to your patient. Um, and then the skin would be, again, pitting edema, but it would also be pale and cool. Uh, as far as neuro goes, we'll check level of consciousness. They might have a headache. Uh, they might have visual disturbances. There may also be um, skeletal muscle problems or paresthesia. And for GI, there should be increased motility in large liver. So um, when we have to check labs, it's almost kind of the opposite of dehydration. So remember, dehydration, the hematocrit, the hemoglobin, the glucose, the protein, the bun, all that stuff will be increased. So when you have fluid overload, everything should be decreased because of the hemodilution. So we'll have decreased um, lab values for the, those type of labs. Um, and it also depends on whatever else the patient has, but if you're just looking at fluid overload, that's what you should see. Um, so for nursing interventions, we're gonna focus on safety. We're gonna try to restore like a normal fluid balance. We are not going to get pulmonary edema, so let's not do that. And then risk, there's a risk for skin breakdown when patients have fluid overload. 
Um, there's like extra pressure, I guess. And then you should always check the bony prominences, the elbows, the heels, the knees, the sides of the knees, the, the sacrum. Check all that because of the decreased skin integrity. Uh, as far as we talk about drugs, there's going to be loop diuretics and that would be Lasix, so furosemide. Um, if they can't take that, they might take conivaptin or Vaprisol, or they'll take Tolvaptin, which is SAMSCA. And these are vasopressin electrolyte modifiers. Um, it doesn't say in the book, but I quickly looked it up. Um, so conivaptin or Vaprisol um, and Tolvaptin or SAMSCA will increase H2O excretion and increase serum sodium. So it's usually used for, um, I think, patients who have hypervolemia with hyponatremia. Um, so it'll help balance out the fluid and the electrolyte balance. Um, some side effects for Tolvaptin, just in case we need to know them. If you know a patient that has this medication, um, it might be dry mouth, constipation, polyuria, and thirst. For Conavaptin, I just put headache and dehydration. And that kind of makes sense. Like dehydration might be for both of them just because whenever you're taking something and if you happen to take too much, you're going to lose extra fluids. So you, even though you have fluid overload and you're taking this medication, you might lose too much fluid and then you become dehydrated. So uh, it's the same with hypertensive medication. A side effect for hypertensive medications will be hypotension because you're lowering your blood pressure, it might lower too much, and then now you have hypotension. Um, we're going to also check weight loss for a patient, so especially if we're trying to get their fluid going out, uh, if we're trying to get their fluid to leave, we need to make sure that they're losing the correct amount of weight. Um, also, there's nutrition therapy, so you might have sodium and volume, sodium and fluid restrictions, uh, and sodium might be reduced to two gram to four gram per day. But the four gram seems like a lot. I I think the usual recommendation is like two grams for a normal human being, but I don't know. Um, we will monitor intake and output again. Eyes and nose, eyes and nose, eyes and nose. You should always check your eyes and nose. Um, rapid weight gain is the best indicator for fluid retention or overload. So we need to make sure they're gaining, if they're gaining weight, it's a, it's an issue, uh, for fluid overload. Um, in order to do that and to make sure that we're getting the most accurate weights, we need to use the same scale. Uh, we should use the same scale every day and we should use it at the same time every day, usually before breakfast. Um, and the main thing, uh, in any type of nursing thing is to teach, 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 education, education, education. So teaching your, your patient about their medications, their diet, their fluids, how to make sure that they, they're not back in the hospital for that specific thing, um, also, also, um, there are like some little notes. So tell the patient that, 
Um, if they gain three pounds in one week, they need to see their doctor. But also if they gain two pounds in 24 hours or one day, they also need to contact their doctor. So um, I think that's about it for this section. I'm just going to recap. So we went over fluid. We went over like the types of diffusions and stuff like osmosis filtration. Um, we went over hormones, dehydration, and fluid overload. So I hope... I learned from this um, and if I end up posting this for the world to hear my knowledge then I hope people learn from this too um, but the next one I'll probably do will be like electrolytes or something like that so that hopefully hopefully I'll learn something and it'll stay in my brain okay I'm done now